Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am so happy to be welcoming back to the program Rebecca Ree. She is a uh, uh, author and a blogger, and she got her Ph.D. Uh, in religion and literature from Boston University, and she is a Hebrew scholar. I'm always excited to talk to her. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you for having me back. Yeah. Well, you know, summertime, it's, it's wrapping up now, so either you've been on vacation or you're scrambling to get on one, and I think uh, recently you and your family went on one and had quite an experience. Yes, we did. Um, that was one that I captured on a blog called Hotel Bed. <laughs> yes. And um, I don't know if, if your listeners have heard me before, but if they haven't, um, we have a nearly seven-year-old autistic son whom we like to take on vacation with us to show him new experiences in the world. And that's always um a rewarding thing to do to see the world through his eyes, but it's also a very challenging and tricky thing to do because of his um, particular sensitivities and needs. So um, recently we went on a trip to Vermont and um, what we've, what we've learned to do in our family is not call it so much vacation as like trip away or, or change of scenery, because um, it actually takes quite a lot more energy to go on vacation with my son than to stay at home where we have a more carefully controlled environment. Um, so uh, the, the experience that we had when we were last time there was uh, sleeping, the sleeping arrangements are usually, I would say, the word is abysmal. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> um, you're, you're not in your own bed as a grown-up, as an adult. They're not in their, their own, um, my son's room I keep to a, a, a minimum in terms of distraction. Everything's safe in there. We, when it's time to go to bed, I can put him in his room and he's fine. But um, those separations between mom and dad's room and, and the kids' rooms dissolve completely on a vacation. And, and not only that, we're in, a, in exciting new sleeping quarters, all kinds of things to explore. And um, I found out um, that hotel after hotel, they, they are very good at lock keeping people from the outside to coming in, but not so much from keeping avid explorers from running out. Yeah. So um, there's always this sort of hypervigilance that we as parents are extending when we're traveling with our son. And we had kind of a a, a spiritual lesson kind of come out of that latest uh, experience of hypervigilance. Um, so the, the, the hotel uh, where we had booked our, our uh, trip, had the room had two queen beds, one next to the other. And um, what, what most, of, most of the time, what one of my, my, either my husband or I, we choose which one of us will sleep with my son. Because he's an avid wanderer, and we're afraid that if he wakes up in the middle of the night and we don't realize it, he could wander out of the room. So one of us usually sleeps with him so that if he gets up in the middle of the night, we'll be aware of what's going on. And um, as you can imagine, um, having a very excited child who thinks that the goal of going to bed is to jump on every inch of the mattress <laughs> does not really mean much sleep for the adult sharing his bed. So I had been through about two or three nights of this already, and it was the very last night of our trip. And I am, you know, sort of bemoaning the fact that I'm so sleep deprived. And I, I'm discussing this with my husband, and he says, you know what, why don't you just try 
um, shifting over the two feet from that bed to this bed and sleep in the same bed with me and give you know, our son his own bed just to see what happens. I think he's going to sleep better, and I think we're going to sleep better. And, of course, at that point, I was um, strangely reluctant to give that a try. I think as, as parents and just as individuals, sometimes we're reluctant to give something a try because we're either um, afraid of the unknown, we don't know what the result's going to be, or we're just so darn exhausted that our brains can't process doing something a new way. So I was kind of considering what my husband had said, and um, I must have thrown up one of those weak prayers that heaven thankfully still considers. <laughs> and I heard, I heard the words, let go, in my head. Just clearly, it kind of cut through all the exhaustion. I thought, well, what have we got to lose? You know, tomorrow we'll be on our way back home. So I decided that let, let, I'm going to let go and let him have his own bed. Well, of course, of the four nights that we were there, that was the one night everybody slept through. <laughs> and <laughs> I had to ask myself now, when and, you know, now having the energy to actually consider higher questions of faith, since I had some sleep under my belt, um, I had to ask myself, now, what, what just happened there? Because it was literally a matter of two feet between that one, you know, one bed and the other. That's, that's all the distance I had shifted. It was just a really c- close distance. But I had made some kind of monumental leap at the same time in letting go of my son. Um, and so I just thought about that. And I thought, um, well, I'll give you a quote from the, from the blog. I, I said, what other blessings, no absolute necessities, might I be preventing from coming my way because I'm not willing to let go? Not willing to surrender something that needs to be put aside anyway. So it was a real challenge to me. I thought, you know what, we, when we're, especially when we're exhausted and we're least likely to consider doing something new, is perhaps the time when we really do need to think of those two small words, let go, and say, you know what, maybe it, 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 this is the exact perfect time to, to surrender something that needs to, that is actually standing in our way of something that we need so badly. And, and the secondary point being just as important, that when we're in a place of need and, and utter exhaustion, it's important to share our, our, our need and exhaustion with others around us because they might be the very source of the words of wisdom, as was my husband on that trip, of um, what we need to hear. So um, surrender and, and share um, was kind of the profound lesson that came out of that. The, the hotel bed. Oh, it's such great wisdom, Rebecca. And do you do this exercise, because I do it, where you role play in your head all the scenarios that may or may not happen, and then you sort of figure out what would be uh, an undesirable outcome, and then you sort of insert that in your head as if it's going to happen, and then you lay in bed at night and stare at the ceiling? Well, I find that I am very good at constructing all kinds of narr- uh, narratives, and I'm very devoted to those okay. um, um, alternate narratives. Yes. I can bow down to them very quickly, and often they're not what happens at all. Um, it can often be the, the polar opposite of what ends up happening. I fully expected that night that I left my son alone that I would get absolutely no sleep, and lo and behold, not only did I sleep, all of us slept. So, and and yeah. you you also thought you might wake up and see an empty bed next to you, and you, and you wonder, where did he go? <laughs> That's exactly right. So there is, yes, there is always some risk involved when we make a change and when we surrender, but um, often it's well worth it. And yeah. often, again, if you can frame it in your mind of, it's really only two feet. It's really <laughs> just a small surrender, but the, but the rewards could be very great. Right. 
So one question I have for you, Rebecca, is what comes as a result of maybe what I would call supreme fatigue, and how does that affect us spiritually? Um, It's interesting because um, I remember reading something of C.S. Lewis where he said sometimes, and he was talking about soldiers going through wartime. It might have been the screw tape letters um, that I read it in. But he was talking about how sometimes the supreme fatigue that these soldiers would experience and really the post-traumatic stress of, of, you know, being exposed to that environment um, led to a kind of surrender, a kind of, um, well, my landscape has become very, very simplified and reduced to I live or die, I trust or I don't trust, um, but it's in God's hands and I can do more, no more than I'm doing now. Um, and so sometimes that does happen to us in our exchange. You know, things become reduced to their barest elements and we see things clearly um, and we see things in an elemental way. Almost kind of like when we celebrate communion as Christians, we are taking the elements. We're taking everything that Jesus taught us and everything that we hope to live out and reducing it down to these simple elements which we take inside of ourselves and hope to go out into the world with. Um, I think that can kind of happen with extreme exhaustion. Things can be um, brought down to their simplest elements, and we can take them in into us in a special way. But I think also the polar opposite can happen is I think we can get really shut down and really, um, let's say, entrenched in our in these like alternative narratives that you were talking about that never end well Mm -hmm. you know the doomsday stories that we can become very firmly entrenched in those and that's where it's absolutely necessary that we be part of a support system where we are being very honest and accountable about the things that we're thinking and also about the things that we may need to help support us in that exhaustion so that we don't travel down these uh, dark roads um, and become devoted to them. And and they're self-fulfilling and self-reinforcing. So that's a really bad path to go down. So it can go either way. But I think, again, if we are surrounded in a supportive community and are honest and accountable about our needs and our exhaustion, the chances of us um, experiencing something more like a Eucharist out of our exhaustion are much, much better. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, what kind of wisdom can you give us who are holding on to things that really should be released? Because well, I, w- I would imagine that's nearly everybody listening today. They're, they're holding on to something that they might need to yeah. let go of. Yes. Um, I would say this, and, um, you know, over my, my academic studies, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to certain Jewish, uh, Jewish modes of interpretation of the Bible. I was able to study some rabbinical methods. And one of the things that Jewish scholars have taught me is the value of a really good question. And I think we can see this in the Gospels when Jesus often, um, when there was some lively debate um, going on, he would sort of cut through to the heart of things with a very good question. And I think when we are holding on to something that we know that we can sense with our, you know, that sixth sense that we may have this this is not so good for me. This is not really working for me. Um, We need to really stop. And again, if we can partner up with someone who's willing to listen to us in a trustworthy way, ask the question, why? Why am I holding on to this thing? How is it working for me? Meaning, well, it keeps my fear at bay. It keeps me from asking deeper questions or having to to face challenges or, um, 
or why, how is it not working for me? Um, how is it holding me back? So I think the value of a few really good questions, journaling can help with that. Um, I think, um, again, speaking with other trusted people who may have um, perspective and objectivity, um, but asking that, that vital question, the why, what am I getting out of this, or how is it serving me, and how is it not serving me, can really, really catapult us to a, a different place. Rebecca, that question is simple, but it's very deep, and it's probably a little scary for people. Oh, you know what? I think the pearls and the gems of wisdom that, that propel us forward in life are never to be, go- uh, never to be gotten without fear. I think the things that are worth the most scare, scare us tremendously. And that's one of the in- indexes you can use. If you find yourself really trembling in your boots as you're considering certain questions, then you have to say, you know what? I'm really afraid. My knees are shaking. This is probably something vital and fundamental to my growth. So I need to press through this question and not run away from it. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Rhee is my guest. Her website is Rebecca Rhee. .net, that's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. She blogs there twice monthly, and you uh, will definitely want to go to the website, check it out, sign up to get on her mailing list because these gems that she writes are simply that. They're gems. So I'm going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Rebecca. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. Delighted to have Rebecca Ree on the program once again. She was a guest on before, and I begged her to come back. She said yes, and her, she uh, blogs at her website, RebeccaRee.net, and you can go learn more about her there. And I'm also, uh, Rebecca, kind of curious to have you tell your story of something that you did, which was uh, pretty significant and pretty emotional and a pretty big deal. And it's uh, when I read that blog, I kind of took a deep breath, and then I had to uh, pause for a minute, and then uh, I thought, well, i got to call Rebecca and get her to share the story. <laughs> well, um, thank you for um, for recognizing it as something that uh, took me some thought and some consideration to put down. Um, so the, the blog title, if anybody wants to go look it up, is called The Dirt. And um, specifically, I was speaking about the dirt that I held in my hand when um, I, my sister, my mother, and I finally interred my father's ashes uh, recently last spring, um, and I was um, given some dirt to throw upon um, the, the urn as it went into the ground. Um, and that experience um, of interring my father's ashes was surprising, um, and that's kind of an unusual word to use, but it was surprising because there was so much contradiction involved in that experience that I had to kind of tease out and find the meaning in. And so the the largest contradiction was the fact that I was there at all. Um, And that was because of the the fact that more than anyone on the planet or in my life narrative, my father is the individual that has caused me the most um, suffering in the world. I I think the most truthful and yet not dishonoring way I can describe him is he was a very divided person 
divided within himself. He had a public self as a pastor and before that as a business executive. And he had a private self, which was the husband and father that he was. And um, there were deep divisions in him, um, deep brokenness in him that he responded to um, with great anger and with great um, affliction. And um, of all the children, there are four of us in the family, of all the children in the family, I was sort of the perfect trigger and target for that anger and affliction because I was most like him in some ways in terms of his temperament, his gifting. I think he saw a lot of himself in me. And so the things that were unresolved in, in him kind of got worked out on me. Um, so that was a very difficult uh, childhood um, I would say um, I, I did work through some post-traumatic stress um, associated with that childhood. And it was, uh, a, again, difficult because on the outside, we were a very um, religious family. But at least the narrative, I cannot speak for my siblings or my mom because that's their story to tell. But for, as for my story to tell, it was quite a different narrative um, that we were living in private, particularly me of all the children. So um, as I got older and started to decide that um, the wounds of my father were very, very deep and that there was something I really needed to explore and, and pursue healing for, um, I had to put up pretty strong boundaries between him and me. Um, when he was alive, that meant I really limited contact with him. And at, at one point, I really had to let go of all contact with him. Um, because he was not a safe person for me, and I, I really wanted to preserve the healing that I was working on. Um, and then after his death, it meant, which was actually seven years ago, we didn't enter his ashes for a long time, but um, after his death, it meant sort of sometimes having to absent myself from family conversations or um, activities that would prove too upsetting for me because my narrative seemed to be different from other people's narratives in the family. Um, so when my mom finally decided it was time, and um, she comes from um, a community in New York, um, and she decided that she would buy a plot there and uh, inter my father's ashes in the family plot, um, I was surprised to find that um, I really just wanted to, to go with her and my sister to do this. Now, I'd never, ever planned to be part of any uh, part of my father's being laid to rest. Um, I couldn't imagine myself attending a service where people say, um, you know, eulogize someone when I would have nothing really to contribute and would feel kind of isolated because my story was different. Um, I found myself as the days drew near and my, my sister came from out of state um, to visit us and to do this. I thought, you know, I really, I really want to do this. I find a desire in me to go and do this. Um, if not for him, but than for them. I want to stand with my mother and my sister on that day. So um, I did. So the three of us kind of went on this pilgrimage, and we all came from different uh, starting points emotionally. And um, we went and we interred my father's ashes. And right before they started to cover over um, the, the plot, I asked the um, caretaker, would you mind if I took some of that dirt and, and spread it? And of course, he gave it to me. And um, I, I, you know, I tossed it on top of the, the urn. And I, I wasn't quite sure what the act meant in the moment. I just know it felt like me trying to finalize something, to say um, something really hard here is being put to rest. But um, the, another contradiction there was, 
in the moments surrounding both before the interment of the ashes and then afterwards, my father sort of, I came closer to my father emotionally than I had in a long time because I had worked, I mean, I've seriously worked on healing from the wounds of my father for probably over three decades. And um, so I had come close to him. I was even dreaming about him um, in a ways just by participating in this interment. Um, and so that was a, a costly trip, but a rewarding trip because it made me really wrestle with what do we do with those wounds that are so profound and are in fact lifelong wounds, wounds that really kind of form who we are and will be with us in one way or another until we reach heaven and are finally freed of all of our wounds. And I, I came out the other side of this interment um, with a, a profound realization. Um, and that is this, that, you know, our old wounds, our lifelong wounds um, are really a two-way street. They affect us, especially when they're first inflicted on us. They affect us deeply. But what we don't realize is as we pursue healing, we affect them. We, those wounds change us, but we also change those wounds in ways that we may not realize. Um, and if, to sort of flesh that out for you, I would like to use the, the example um, as we have in the scriptures of the wounds of Jesus. So when uh, we first read about his wounds in the gospel, when we hear about his um, scourging and his crucifixion, if we were a, a, you know, a bystander looking at that happening, there's nothing we could say in that moment except to say this is evil and this is full of suffering. There's nothing beautiful or redemptive about this. This is a place of utter evil, undoing, and affliction. And this is not the will of God in that sense of that this should that this should have to happen. <laughs> um, and then, as we go on in the narrative, on the other side of the crucifixion, when Jesus is resurrected, and he comes and he appears before the disciples, and he says to Thomas in particular, who he wasn't there, and he's just like saying, this is evil and suffering. I'm not going to accept anything other than what those, the evil of those wounds, until I see something different. And I've kind of got to admire Thomas for sticking to his guns like that. And Jesus says, put your hand in my side, touch my wounds. And all of a sudden, we see that it's not just a point of absolute evil and affliction. Now the wounds have become a point of contact between humanity and divinity, between a point of deeper relationship. And you could even say the wound has become a point of uh, resuscitating a faith that was dying. Um, so then, okay, so then we see a little change there. There's change. For, and then there's one more change that we see in the gospel accounts, which is it's actually not the gospels, the, um, the prophecy, uh, Isaiah. There's a verse in there that says, by his wounds, we are healed. So then I thought that seems to be another um, image entirely. The wounds there are not just a point of contact or of resuscitating faith. Now the wounds have become a source of actual healing. They're, they're transformed. It's like from this place that only evil and affliction came, all of a sudden there's healing pouring out to others. Rebecca, I'm going to hold you over till the other side of the break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. I have Rebecca Ree on our studio line. And Rebecca, what do we see in the wounds of Jesus? So we see a progression and a change in the wounds of Jesus, what they mean at the beginning of the narrative, and then what they mean as the ongoing narrative unfolds. And I think the same thing happens with us. I think when we, like when I was growing up with my father, first um, are inflicted with these wounds, there is nothing lovely or redemptive or good that you can say about them when they're when they're happening because they should never have had to happen. They should never have happened. Um, and we sometimes as Christians we're we're too quick to jump to the redemptive part when we don't sit long enough with the with the horror of it, and we do a disservice to those who have been traumatized by real wounds when we don't sit with them in that place. But then as um, we we pursue healing of those wounds. Um, then they become, again, that point of contact between us and God, that point of contact when maybe our faith gets resuscitated from the place where it was destroyed at one place, point. And then hopefully as we continue lifelong, as I have over the last 30 years, to pursue healing, those wounds become a source of healing not only to ourselves but for others. So, you know, the dirt, going back to the image of the dirt, when God says to Adam, you know, from dust you are and to dust you will return. Yes, there is a point where we always are going to return to that dirt of where we were hurt and um, where those wounds um, were first inflicted on us. But I, I do think that there is a promise if we invite others into the process and if we persist in our pursuing of healing, that same dirt becomes fertile ground. And we know not what we will become and what those wounds will become. And I think there's incredible potential um, for, for those wounds to become a source of healing. Rebecca, you have connected some amazing dots in this, uh, in this story, in this blog. And thank you so much for being so vulnerable and sharing this. Oh, well, we all have a story to tell. And at some point, God opens our mouth to tell it. <laughs> yes, and I would love for you to return. And as you uh, continue adding uh, blogs, I'd love to talk about them. You're just uh, really a f- magnificent storyteller. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thank you for having me, Yeah, Bill. Yeah, my guest has been Rebecca Ree. You're going to definitely want to go to her website and sign up to get on her blog. Subscribe to it at net. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-R-H-E-E.net. I always love on Tuesdays, I get a chance to talk to Rob Bluey. He thrived as a conservative at a liberal university, and he's now executive editor of the Daily Signal, and I would wager he's also a grill master in any backyard barbecue. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you've had a busy day, haven't you? Oh, certainly. There's never a dull moment in Washington, (laughs) D.C., that's for sure. Yeah. Now, you wrote a great article on the ways in which liberals uh, and conservatives may have a couple things in common, which is just the antithesis to what we think. That's true, Bill. And and thank you for bringing up this topic. I think it's so important for us to have a conversation about this with all the other news and headlines we see. Uh, It really just, I think in many cases, helps to drive us apart. And, And there really is more in common, as this group that we interviewed uh, would have uh, have you believe. And and so, like, let's take some of the, the issues or re- really some of the dynamics that are at play. 
you know, in today's environment, uh, you know, we often talk on this program about having a balanced news diet, so mm -hmm. not just getting your news from one source. As much as we love people going to the Daily Signal and subscribing, I really think it's healthy to have other sources where you get your news and information. But in today's day and age, with the social media networks the way they are and uh, news sites catering to, you know, certain types of perspectives, uh, really uh, Americans aren't getting that same kind of balance that they once did, and it's leading people to believe that they have strong differences of opinion when really it's just a perception. It's not reality. Americans are much closer together when it comes to finding solutions towards the biggest problems that we might be facing. And you take a look at, at some of the big issues like immigration, which is one that I know you and I talk about often. Mm -hmm. And actually, there's there's some agreement on, on solving uh, th those types of issues. Uh, for instance, you know, the Americans generally believe that there should be a rule of law in place and people should have to follow it. But at the same time, we need to address those people who are here and figure out a solution for what to do uh, with them. So, you know, it's hard sometimes to go about that legislating process, but uh, it must be done and we, we can't overcome our differences. Mm -hmm. You had a chance to do a nice podcast with uh, Stephen Haw Hawkins, um, which was great. That's right. So Stephen is the global director of research at the group called More in Common. Mm -hmm. And this group uh, had uh, two big studies that some of your listeners may have heard about, if not directly, at least through some other coverage. Uh, the most recent is called the perception gap. And that's what I was just talking about in terms of how Americans perceive each other uh, is different than what we actually believe in reality. And so one of the interesting findings that struck me was those who have a higher degree of education, so those who graduate from a four-year college or go on and get a master's or a doctorate, actually have uh, less in con they, they, they have a, a really bad perception of those who um, are maybe on the conservative spectrum. So uh, they're not connected with those individuals. They're probably not living in the same communities. They're not consuming the same type of media. Uh, and they've developed a certain perception of who they are, when in reality, uh, you know, they might actually not be all that different. So that was the one study. It's called the perception gap. And the other study is called hidden tribes. And it's how Americans tend to divide themselves into these different cohorts. And I think the most promising uh, statistic out of this one is that the biggest block of Americans actually fall into a politically disengaged category. They're so frustrated with the lack of uh, movement on things in Washington, D.C., or generally the way that uh, the news media talk about things that they just have decided to tune out. And I think we need to find ways to get them more engaged. We need to have them active participants and they can help probably bridge some of the gaps between uh, the right and the left in this country and help us solve some of those big issues. You know, Rob, we never want to lose voter participation. We never want voters to become disenfranchised where they, they just stay home. That's right. I mean, it's so important to play an active role. One of the things that Stephen talks about in our interview is is how the uh, the political primary process contributes to some of these these challenges because you tend to have the most extreme candidates uh, are the ones who end up you know be getting the nomination. I mean, look, we have a Democratic presidential primary. It seems every day somebody's trying to outmaneuver each other uh, to see who can be more liberal than the other person on the stage. And so I think at the end of the day, that doesn't really necessarily serve the broad American public uh, who will end up having to make a decision about you know who's going to end up in the White House uh, you know when it comes to casting a vote uh, ballot in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, it, when I look at some of the uh, shootings that happen in El Paso and then also in Dayton, it always brings up the the idea of gun control questions. It's always at the top of everyone's mind. There are, I think, approximately 400 million guns owned uh, by uh, citizens here in the United States. 
That's a very significant number of guns. Uh, so how do you think this is all going to tie into uh, the election coming up? Well, it, the election, but also uh, it's going to have a major impact, I think, on the election because you're going to have the next Democratic debate in, in mid-September. This will probably be a, a huge focus of discussion given uh, you know, how it's already playing among the candidates. But I think even before that, you will have Congress uh, returning to Washington on September 9th. There is a request from President Trump that the lawmakers get together and, and put forward a, a solution. Uh, you've even had some Democrats urging Mitch McConnell to call the Senate back into session early uh, to tackle this issue. The House, of course, under Democratic control, has passed a couple of gun control bills. It seems unlikely that Republicans will want to move forward with those measures. But there could be other ways that they, they look to uh, overcome some of their differences, given, uh, given that they are um, front and center, and maybe move toward uh, some sort of a solution when it comes to red flag laws, uh, empowering states to maybe uh, incentivize them to, to take steps to, to pass this type of legislation. There are those urging for uh, more stringent background checks. I think, you know, what we have to do in this case is balance those uh, constitutionally protected freedoms. So, you know, there are there is the Second Amendment, and the Second Amendment is is cherished by uh, those uh, those freedom loving Americans and the people who who own those guns, and they don't want to see themselves end up on some national registry in which the government uh, is increasingly uh, in control of their lives or peering into what their private behavior is. Well, at the same time, addressing some of the challenges that we've seen come out of these shootings, where you have mentally disturbed individuals who, in some cases, probably should have been uh, flagged, uh, and and maybe there could have been uh, we could have even prevented some of the tragedies. Um, I know mental illness plays a part. What about the internet and the fact that I can become an instant celebrity by six o'clock tonight if I go on a mass shooting? Which, by the well, way, I'm not going to do. And, 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 Bill, I'm glad you brought that up because we've taken a, a proactive step here at the, at the Daily Signal, as have many news organizations, where we uh, no longer will mention the name of the shooter, nor will we um, run that person's photo, in part because there have been studies done and academic research shows that uh, there are some people who out, are out there because of copycat attacks, and they want that kind of notoriety that you get from, from doing such a thing. Now, of course, you know, major news outlets continue to do that, and I think, uh, you know, the Daily Signal doing it along with a few others might not have the kind of substantial impact. But I think we can hope and we can pressure other places to stop glorifying uh, this, this violence in some of the ways that they do. I also think that, you know, I saw a report today where the um, – what the the interest in these among the American public in terms of Google searches and just seeking out information is 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 coming and going much faster. So when you had the Virginia Tech shooting, which was uh, you know I believe um, five years ago or, or thereabouts, maybe even longer now, you know it, it, there was much more sustained interest in what happened in that case and an effort to enact some solutions uh, that might prevent it. Uh, today, these come and go rather quickly. I mean, we saw within a span of 13 hours there were there were two mass shootings, uh, you know, two weekends ago, and that was uh, the the dominant story for much of the week. But then quickly, people lost interest or moved on to other stories. And this is one of the things that I lament about the news cycle that we sometimes live in is that it really doesn't give us an opportunity to have a serious conversation or or have a, a sustained conversation even about some of these topics because we do move so quickly on to the next thing. And a lot of these these killers, and I hate to um, uh, I hate to t even talk about them at all, but they're they're the disturbed kids that are trying to make 
their name their name be known and some take their lives some get shot and some survive so maybe we'll learn some more about what's going on with uh, in their minds but the the mental illness component i sometimes uh, don't know mentally ill people don't necessarily pick up guns and go kill people that's right i mean there are other motivations behind it um i mean in in the case of el paso much has been made of the manifesto that the uh, killer posted online before um, carrying out the shooting. I think we need to condemn, as the president did, uh, white supremacy and all forms, these radical forms. I mean, in, in many cases, you know, these ideological beliefs may influence, but in other cases, it doesn't appear that they necessarily do. I mean, in Dayton, you had somebody who identified as a leftist, um, but, you know, there wasn't a manifesto left behind, so it's unclear yeah. maybe what the motive was. So, Bill, uh, it's it's a tough question to answer, but I think that this is where community and civil society come into play, and, and maybe we can talk more about it, but I think the church plays a big role in this, your faith, uh, your family. Uh, those are all things that we see deteriorating in our culture right now, and I think that that also is a contributing factor. Yeah, you're always so wise, Rob. Rob Louie is my guest. He's the executive editor of The Daily Signal. DailySignal.com is the website. We'll take a short break and be right back with Rob. Welcome back to the show. Always glad to talk to Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. DailySignal.com is the website. Rob, would you kind of explain to me what's going on with uh, the U.S. and China when it comes to the trade agreement and all the tariffs? And I mean, what a roller coaster ride we've been on this week uh, with the stock market last week and this week. It's been nuts. Yeah, it certainly is. And we should also talk about uh, Hong Kong and uh, oh, indeed. China's. Yeah, the president's tweet today, uh, which which puts a new focus on, on that region even more so. Uh, yeah, so let's start with tr- with trade. I mean, this is uh, an ongoing debate. I mean, President Trump has made clear even long before he was president that, that China is uh, an adversary, and he has uh, lived up to that reputation in the White House, taking a tough tact, imposing tariffs on China, China retaliating. Uh, clearly, the president is not pleased with the direction things are going with China. Um, as, as somebody who believes in free trade and believes that, uh, you know, that leads to greater prosperity for people all across the world. Personally, sometimes I, I question some of the decisions, um, and, 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 you know, I, it certainly seems to be contributing. I'm no stock market expert, Bill, but, I mean, it certainly seems to be contributing to the ups and downs that we see uh, there on Wall Street. And I know that, uh, you know, to the effect that, it, you know, to a certain extent, it has an effect on, on Americans uh, who, who have money in the stock market or uh, have their retirement funds in the, in the stock market. I mean, fortunately, we haven't seen uh, when it goes down, it bounces back up. But uh, we need to certainly lead the way when it comes to free trade and setting a positive example. Uh, I mean, the best, the best approach, and my colleague Steve Moore often talks about this, is to get to zero tariffs on both sides. So mm-hmm. rather than ratcheting them up, how about we bring them down and we just eliminate those barriers and those taxes because ultimately it's going to uh, be a penalty that's imposed on, on the American people. Now, there's a separate issue going on when it comes to Hong Kong, and we can talk about that as well because I think that also has some global ramifications. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about that. 
Well, sure. So the president today tweeted that there is new intelligence uh, showing that China is moving some of its military forces uh, near closer to Hong Kong in the event that they need to, to intervene. Uh, we've seen uh, protesters overtake the airport. We've seen ongoing protests since Hong Kong's leader imposed, uh, tried to impose a new regulation which would have uh, limited, uh, you know, the, the, the freedom and the liberty of those living in Hong Kong. Now, remember, Hong Kong is in this transition period, going from a British territory uh, to becoming a part of China. And uh, under that, they have certain rights and privileges that mainland China doesn't have. I think that they fear that those rights and privileges are being eroded. Uh, this was a, a clear attempt by Carrie Lam uh, to do so. Uh, what, I, what I think is unfortunate is to see the violence carried out to the extent that it, it has. Um, in, in some cases, it seems like uh, I'm not really sure what the protesters uh, want to see as their ends or if this is just a means of creating disruption. But uh, I think it would be terrible to have uh, a confrontation there with the Chinese, and certainly that would only serve to escalate things in that region. Yeah. So, Rob, how, how are we doing uh, when it comes to, I know this is kind of a departure, but um, protecting our environment and the endangered species? I know President Trump has got uh, some uh, Endangered Species Act that has not been very effective. Um, That's right. That, that's right. This is a little reported thing, Bill. I mean, I, I you know, I, this is right from our policy experts at the Heritage Foundation and why I love working at this organization, because we try to cut through the clutter that you read in the news media and bring you the facts. I mean, mm-hmm. it is remarkable. So for over 45 years, the Endangered Species Act, which your listeners have probably seen in the news this week because of President Trump's action, it has failed to recover a species with only about a 3% of them listed, getting delisted due to those recovery efforts. Mm. So just 3% of those species that they were trying to recover have been successful. And if, if a program like this is failing so terribly, you would think that it, the, the politicians in Washington would want to come together and reform it. President Trump proposes, and he's immediately attacked as somebody who hates our environment <laughs> and is trying to destroy these species. When in fact, uh, it hasn't been working, and you know that's the definition of insanity. We keep doing doing it over and over again, and you finally have somebody who comes from a business-minded uh, background and wants to change the way things are done. And I think that that's what the president is, is really trying to do here, uh, reform and modernize the Endangered Species Act. Uh, let's see if we can actually protect these species that are truly threatened. Mm-hmm. Rob, as we start to look at uh, the fall coming up and the start of school, are we seeing common sense on college campuses or are things getting worse? You know, we just, uh, our intern class just wrapped up work here at the Heritage Foundation. They're all headed back to their various colleges, I think some 30, uh, some odd and all. And uh, the stories that I heard were uh, were in some cases really uh, terrifying. Uh, I mean, I, I can't believe uh, what goes on in some of these college campuses today. It is it is really sad, Bill, that uh, you have professors who I think abuse their, their position of authority and, and really try to intimidate students who don't necessarily hold those same beliefs. And and yes, so uh, it, there is, uh, I think, a lack of common sense in, in some cases. And you see it uh, from all sorts of different uh, factors um, in terms of, you know, the academic literature, the books that they're having people read, uh, to just their um, hostility toward conservative speakers or those maybe who have Christian values uh, who want to represent themselves on campus. So we have a story at the Daily Signal which goes through a number of these cases, um, including one from uh, from Portland State University, uh, where, where one of the professors there had really questionable ethical behavior and uh, and was banned from actually conducting academic research. So you know. What 
we're going to continue to monitor these things. I think it's really important to tell these stories to make sure that parents understand uh, what's going on on college campuses, hopefully help them and their children make better decisions when they go about picking uh, certain campuses uh, to go to. Mm -hmm. Rob, what do you think of the whole episode with Jeffrey Epstein's death? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of unknown questions, that's for sure. I mean, it, it's. Uh, I think that there, we've already seen uh, some people try to hold others accountable. Look, there's a lot of people right now who are probably going to be implicated in some way. Uh, what, uh, just a day before uh, he died, there were a number of high-profile individuals, the former senator from Maine, the former U.N. ambassador and governor of New Mexico, um, you know, uh, the monarchy in England, you know, all sorts of individuals who were implicated and named. And now it's unclear if those individuals will ever be held accountable for, for their terrible actions. What we do know is this. Jeffrey Epstein did some terrible things. And, uh, and you know, he um, is not going to be – his accusers will not be able to face him. And I think that that's unfortunate. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really disappointing to see the criminal justice system fail in this way. And I hope that we get some answers, whether it's through the autopsy to find out what happened to him personally or reform so this doesn't happen in other high-profile cases. Mm -hmm. Rob, the federal government uh, spent $3.7 trillion in the first 10 months of this uh, fiscal 2019. Is this a bipartisan agreement? It certainly seems to be, Bill. I mean, this is one of those areas where the Heritage Foundation is uh, standing firm and saying, you need to get spending under control. Uh, and we put out a budget proposal to do that. It's called Blueprint for Balance. It balances in 10 years. But it takes, it, it takes leadership. It takes uh, some making some sacrifices. Uh, just like a family has to make decisions to balance their budget, so do our federal lawmakers need to do so. And states oftentimes are, are faced with this without any choice. I mean, they have to balance their budget every year. It, it seems reasonable to expect the same from Congress. But uh, this president has has been unwilling to veto legislation. He's gone along with the spending increases. And I think that, unfortunately, he's set us now on a, on a path where uh, we're going to have to make some t tough choices in the future. And we have to adequately fund our military, and we can't have all the pet projects that everybody else wants. Uh, at some point, you have to make choices. And uh, it's tough to be a leader and to do that, but that's what we need to demand of our, our elected representatives. Mm -hmm. Just got an um, uh, email from a, a listener it said it. Uh, he said it troubles me when uh, intelligent Christians like you and Rob take up the secular media mantra about guns and how Washington needs to do something. Murderers don't murder people because they have guns. They murder people because they're sick, evil, or wounded. So, um, you know. I, I, well, I appreciate that letter uh, and, and that perspective. And, and look, I actually think many of the solutions are outside of Washington. I think too often times, I mean, you talk about the federal budget, that's clearly within the square of, of what Congress needs to do. You talk about some of the issues when it comes to, to, to gun violence in this country, I think local communities probably are on the, on the first line of that. And that's why I, I made the case, Bill, that, that civil society and, and the institutions like our churches and families, uh, community organizations probably need to be at the forefront of doing that. That's not to say that government doesn't have any role. I think that if these red flag laws uh, do empower individuals to take action that otherwise they don't have right now. Yeah, maybe there's a role for that. But in no way can we infringe on the constitutional rights of, of law-abiding citizens. Right. He uh, ended his message by saying that the closest political solution available is to allow public school teachers to tell students, thou shalt not kill, which is currently unconstitutional. So don't hold your breath on that one. Well, and, and look, that's another change that we've seen in our society, right? Um, you know, I, I was I – was, 
you know, very encouraged by the fact that when I went to my ch- children's school, which is a public school, uh, they still recite the Pledge of Allegiance. But in, in many cases, you're absolutely right. I mean, religion is, is totally frowned upon. And, uh, and, and I do think that, that faith plays a big role and, and can play a big role in, in, in helping people not only overcome some of the challenges that they may face in their own lives, but it can help families, uh, which is why, you know, even if you, you know, I encourage people to to regularly go, you know, to to seek out a church or, or, you know, a a, a way that they can, they can connect with a community. Uh, But I mean, even just a daily prayer is, is something that I I really think is so important for all of us to, to engage in and, uh, and why as parents, it's so important, not only for, for me and my wife to, to instill that in our children, but I, I would hope all across this country, others uh, who are listening to this program can share that message with, with their friends and neighbors. Yeah, so just would love to encourage the parents and the work they have before them to shape and mold their kids and, and uh, just what you and your wife are doing with your boys. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Look, it's, it's, uh, parenting is, is no easy task, let's face it. And uh, in, in some cases, we look at trends and patterns and we see that some of these shooters come from broken households where there's a single parent and, and there clearly seems to be a pattern there. In other cases, there may be two parents. So it, it's, not, it's not one way or the other, but, um, but I think the, the more we can encourage uh, parents to, to try to resolve their differences and, uh, and remain together, uh, you know, it's another thing, that, another factor that I think can help reduce some of the challenges that we, we find in our society. Yeah. Rob, thank you so much for going the extra mile today. I know I kept you in your office a little later than usual, so I appreciate that very much. Well, Bill, it's always great to be with you on Faith Radio. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Rob Bluey has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. His website is dailysignal.com. Check it out. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.